0: Welcome to uh, the Westpac Economics uh, Market Outlook uh, presentation today. Uh, Yesterday we released our monthly Market Outlook, which includes all our forecasts and our analysis of the various sectors of the economy, including the global outlook. And today what I wanted to do was give you an overview of some of the key points that we were making in the document and then have some discussions with various members of the team who contributed uh, articles into the into the uh, presentation, into the document. Uh, so let me start by just giving you an overview of some of the key points that we uh, that we have highlighted in the last month or so. So the first point was that uh, last month, in response to the announcement of the stage four restrictions in Victoria. We reviewed our growth rate for Victoria. As you know, we've now been focusing on growth in each of the individual states rather than looking at uh, and working up from there to get national numbers, rather than looking at um, the, the, the expenditure numbers from a top-down perspective. Uh, that's partly because there's such a significant divergence between the states although we are seeing that the states outside Victoria are starting to move uh, further into line. Uh, However, we did expect that uh, Victoria would contract by around 9% in the third quarter, based on the fact that uh, the stage four was going to take a lot of jobs out of the system and that spending would be hit very hard. As we move through the quarter, it became clear from our high-frequency data around the Apple Mobility Indexes and around our Car Tracker Indexes that provides us with uh, basically what's been happening in July and August already. As we move forward through the month, it's been clear that the contraction in Victoria wasn't going to be as great as we expected, so we we revised that contraction from a minus nine to a minus four. The rebound in Victoria in the December quarter as they move back into stage three and potentially stage two, we've slowed that down from a plus six to a plus four. Uh, For the other states, we continue to be quite optimistic. We've got New South Wales growing by 3% in the September quarter, 2% in the December quarter, Queensland and South Australia 3.5 and and 2, Western Australia 4 and 3. Uh, and so that what that means, however, is that before we had growth in the third quarter of zero and in the fourth quarter of 2.8%, we've now got growth in the third quarter at 1.8% and growth in the fourth quarter at 2.2%. And over the year, we've got growth contracting by 3.5% rather than 4.7%. But next year, we did have growth at 3%, uh, we've scaled that back because we do have a major constraint on how we see uh, this cycle of the economy unwrap, un, unfolding. And that is about where we see the level of activity in the economy by the end of 2021, when presumably we do have a vaccine, uh, borders have been lifted. But there will still be parts of the economy that will be carrying ongoing scars. So we do expect that by the end of next year, activity will be at a lower level than it was at the end of 2019. For that reason, with a minus three and a half in 2020, uh, we've scaled back our 2021 number from three to two and a half. And I believe there's downside risks to that two and a half. However, that would leave the economy operating at at less than the 2019 activity level by the end of 2021. And bear in mind that normally you expect the Australian economy trend growth around two and three quarter percent. So normally you would have expected over 20 and 2021 the economy to be growing by nearly 6% more than at the end of 19, and yet we've got something less than one. So quite a substantial correction relative to trend. That of course has also led to some downward revisions in our unemployment forecasts, and we now have the unemployment rate at 7.8% by the end of this year, that compares with 10% for the RBA. And I'll be talking to Justin Smirk about that in our Q&A session later on in the discussion. Uh, For next year, because we've lowered our growth forecast, the recovery in the labour market we think will be pretty sluggish. And so we've only got the unemployment rate dropping from 7.8 to 7.4 over the course of next year. Second point I wanted to talk about was uh, my assessment of the RBA at the moment. So, a journalist wrote this week, I thought it was a pretty clever comment, when he said, central banks are independent from governments, but not necessarily from themselves. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. I think we saw the Federal Reserve clearly adopt a higher inflation target than we've had in the past. Interesting that the the debate, of course, has been that central banks should be lowering their inflation target in recognition of a low inflation world. But the Fed is now arguing that the inflation is not 2%, it's an average of 2%, which means we want to spend a fair bit of time with the inflation above 2%. Um, That says to me that central banks are going to be more stimulatory than they expected before because as the Fed adjusts its thinking, so it will affect other banks. So it was interesting that we saw a new statement coming out from the Reserve Bank Governor when he spoke two weeks ago. And he said, the statement indicated, he said, the board continues to consider how further monetary policy measures could support the recovery. Further monetary policy measures. That hasn't been used in, in, the, uh, in the statement since the big moves on, on, um, on quantitative easing and moving the rate to the effective lower bound back in March. So they are looking at other ways to support the economy. They've introduced the, um, the TFF the term funding facility which provides banks with three-year money at 0.25%. They've increased that uh, from around $152 billion to around $207 billion, uh, and that's providing banks with that facility. Now, we understand that the banks have, because of the sharp rise in uh, government bonds on issue, the banks will now have to scale back the so-called CLF, which was a a, a liquidity facility the Reserve Bank was providing and take more government bonds on. So get, the banks will be in a position to buy more government bonds, keep down with pressure on bond rates, but I think they'll also be in a position to be able to support the mortgage market. Because what we've seen is that we've seen this big fall in fixed rate mortgages from um, uh, around three, three 35 to around 2.3% on the three year rate and we've seen a substantial lift in interest from borrowers in that, in that range uh, and that's I believe the TLF is also going to provide banks with an opportunity to support that market. Finally let me say a couple of words about the Australian dollar. Uh, we have lifted our forecast for the Aussie dollar from uh, 72 by the end of this year to 75 and from 76 by the end of next year to 80. The arguments are pretty convincing from our perspective. Firstly, from a fair value perspective, the Aussie dollar is is well, well below its fair value. We have a fair value of about $0.78. Cents. Elliot will talk a little later about our, our revisions to our global growth outlook, which is also supporting our view on those commodity prices. Um, we're, we're also expecting that... The RBA will be comfortable with the rise in the Aussie dollar uh, because from a fundamental perspective, as I said, it's still very much in line with their thinking. Even though they chose to talk about the Aussie dollar for the first time in their statement, in the Governor's statement two two weeks ago, I think it doesn't mean that they'll be looking at policies in the near term anyway, such as negative interest rates or currency intervention. Uh, and we are expecting to see this momentum in China continue for the rest of this year uh, and um, and China to continue to outperform the US over the course of the next couple of years. Uh, so our confidence around the rise in the Aussie dollar is also supported by, our, by the evidence that once the Aussie dollar turns, it tends to turn for an extended period of time. So we've seen since the mid-1990s uh, that the periods in which the Aussie has been either rising or falling have typically been between four, two and four years, with one exception with the big collapse after the GFC. But so we know that it turned, it bottomed out in March this year. Um, so I think it's a brave person to say that this cycle is only going to be six to nine months. And that's why we feel that despite the fact that it's pulled back from over 73 cents back to 72 cents in recent weeks, the ongoing upward pressure on the Aussie dollar is likely to be sustained. So let me finish at that point with our growth, our upward growth revision, our observation that the RBA is going to remain on the front foot in terms of providing stimulus, and the fact that we think that the Aussie dollar has got a fair way further to run over the course of this year and next year. But let me now uh, uh, open it up to discussion with the team, and I'm going to be talking to Matthew Hassan, Justin Smirk, Andrew Hanlon, and Elia Clark the members of our team. Uh, Firstly, I'm going to talk to Matthew. And Matthew, I'd like to ask you the following question. One of the factors behind our lifting of our growth forecast, particularly around Victoria, has been the evidence that we're getting from the Westpac card tracker. So can you explain the card tracker and why you think that we're um, we're making a right decision in using it as a high-frequency measure of what's happening in economies?
1: Uh, so, so, one of the things that has uh, become clear during the, the COVID recession um, is that the hard data is, is giving us a better guide on activity than what we might have used previously, so the likes of sentiment measures and you know, working through uh, you know, rough rules of thumb about um, you know, uh, interest rate changes impacting on incomes and so on, flying through to spending, you know, and previously that would have been uh, acceptable uh, to get an estimate for, for activity and spending. Um, but because the, uh, the, the lockdown effects are so large and have such a direct impact, you know, they're effectively outright bans on activity, but they're not really working in the current environment. So to get a better uh, and timelier read on on real activity, uh, we've developed the, the Westpac Card Tracker Report, People may have heard of this already. Um, this gives us a weekly reading uh, looking across the, the millions of card transactions, Westpac uh, processes every day. And most importantly, uh, it gives us weekly updates, just three or four business days after the end of the week. So we've got uh, car data now that's already giving us uh, a top-level guidance around uh, activity in early September uh, compared to you know, other data like retail sales, which is only up to, to July. Uh, and as you say, the message um, that's been coming out has been fairly clear. You know, It's still an imperfect measure, by all means, uh, but it's going to capture really big impacts associated with uh, lockdowns and, and the like and what we've seen uh, through August uh, is that the second wave lockdown is impacting in victoria uh, but not quite as heavily as we feared going into it we thought it would be a, a harder lockdown than the first one in, in April may uh, instead it looks to be uh, on par maybe slightly milder uh, judging by card activity and it's being more than offset by reopening rebounds across the other states so net net spending looks to on track for a solid a partial rebound in the third quarter. You know, we've got to allow that. Um, yeah, these are imperfect measures, and there may be some skew as people have been moving from using cash to using card. And we may still see some some softening as as uh, September unfolds. Um, but, uh, you know, even with that, you know, the quarterly wash-up is, is still looking uh, better than we'd expected uh, and, and there's not really a, a great reason to believe that we'll see a, a, a real capitulation in Victorian activity from here. Uh, so I think this is a pretty important. Obviously, this is a view that is backed up by other high-frequency data, as you mentioned, around uh, jobs and, and, uh, and mobility uh, and, and to some extent by the you know the course of the virus itself, which is uh, you know, saying that there's not any, any more sort of lurking big negatives to come through but I think I think we're, we're right to sort of step off this is um, uh, you know the, the card data I think is is pretty firm evidence.
0: Hey and I, I, I wasn't that happy with you saying that the confidence numbers aren't a reliable indicator. We had a huge surge in confidence yesterday up 18 percent which is sort of consistent with the theme that we pushed out last week. So tell me did that surprise you that 18 percent jump in confidence?
1: Oh look, yes, yes, and no. I'm not saying that the uh, sentiment measures aren't aren't uh, valid in their own right, um, and, and certainly I think they're giving us uh, support for for that that view as well. I think it's more that they are not sort of linking as nicely to, to the variations in activity. I think you know that, that resurgence. Obviously, we you know going back a month, um, you know the big fall in August where we saw sentiment drop nearly 10 percent near April lows. At the time, you know we said that looked overdone especially outside of Victoria, and there looked to be a fear factor at work that people were seeing the outbreak in Victoria, they seeing similar outbreaks gathering steam overseas, uh, and the fear was that this was an outbreak that was set to sweep the nation. Uh, And and there was a fair bit of of justifiable nervousness, Now we were pretty nervous at the time as well, especially uh, in New South Wales, we were seeing this persistent uh, cluster of of, uh, outbreaks. But our baseline was, was still, you know, the spread interstate wouldn't really take off uh, and so we felt that, that that was overdone in August and we expected to see some some rebound but the scale is surprising you know 18 percent rebound in the month that takes us above the June level uh, and and only a couple of points shy of the average leading into the COVID shock um, and what's interesting there's plenty of interesting stuff in the, in the detail there always is but uh, yeah the, the interesting aspect of the detail I think is that there's, there's evidence that the government supports that uh, were pretty apparent in the June quarter national accounts uh, detail on the income side for households also look to be giving support to sentiment. So if you look at the, the, the components behind the headline, uh, the measure of uh, family finances versus a year ago, um, that jumped to an 18-month high. So that went past the average leading into COVID. And that's a that clear evidence that you know, these supports that produced a, a net gain in, in incomes in the June quarter uh, are being captured in sentiment and providing some additional support as well. So I think overall, the reason reason I'm I'm, I'm, uh, wary about the the sentiment measures compared to the hard data is that they're they're so volatile. uh, We've seen a round trip over the last six months of 74 percentage points on the the consumer sentiment index. Uh, It's swinging around 10 to 20 points month to month. Um, uh, you know, that, that move over a six-month period is bigger than, than anything we've seen historically. You know, the, the big moves we saw during the GFC, which are pretty, pretty wild, that, you know, over a six-month period, that was about 40 percentage points. So uh, I think, you know, in this, this, uh, you know, with so much uncertainty around, um, you know, the hard data, I think, is, is the one to really turn to to, to see, you know, where, where the chips are falling as far as spending goes.
0: But th- thanks a lot, Matt. Well, as you know, I'm old school. We've had our sentiment index going since the 70s. This car track has only been around for you know, a, couple of, a couple of months, so I think there's value in both of them as you've said. Look Justin, um, you've got the hard job of, of uh, trying to forecast the unemployment rate in such a, such a volatile environment uh, and we've further lowered our unemployment forecast on the basis mm-hmm. of the, um, the, the lift in growth that we've seen in our forecast. Yep. And now we're really out of line with the RBA, so I think it's 7.8 percent by the end of this year. RBA sitting that's at 10 percent. Right. What are we seeing differently, Justin?
2: And, and we are drifting up to uh, 7.9, closer to 8, early next year as we get the unwinding of the JobKeeper and JobKeeper. But what is different is um, we've already seen some differences already, like we've seen a much stronger recovery that's come through um, more broadly. To put it in perspective, what the RBA's numbers are suggesting, to get that 10% at the end of the year, they need to lose about 300,000 jobs. Now, true, that is consistent with what um, the government is forecasting for a rise in the number of people on unemployment benefits by the end of the year. But so far, we haven't been seeing those sort of numbers come through. Now, yes, some of it may be around the JobKeeper packages and how they are mined. But we also got the observation coming through in Victoria more recently where there was expectations that you'd see job losses of up to two hundred thousand dollars with a second two hundred thousand people with a second round shutdown. That didn't happen. Um, and also we know from looking at those mobility indicators and now we've got those weekly payroll numbers that August is looking like it will be a soft number but more like minus fifty rather than two hundred thousand. So the numbers have been going better. um we've got this um, offset coming through now for the next between now and then the year that we believe, Um, will keep jobs roughly flat. That is, um, there will be some job losses coming through as the job seeker, job keeper packages are readjusted. The um, distances are sort of slowly unwound. But the economy is recovering in other sectors, particularly in the other states, WA uh, and South Australia stand out, and Queensland as well. Now in that kind of environment, we feel much more comfortable saying that the, the track for the next 12 months will be broadly flat. Interestingly enough, we're not too far off at the off where we are at the end of end of 21, um, but the end of next year there's about the RBA's is um, about a, a percentage point higher than us. So you can see that they've got this much bigger drop through, they much bigger, stronger recovery. Our view is that we've got this sort of softer, we've got this recovery coming through now, and it's going to be much more flat and drawn out um, and, and delayed through the rest of next year.
0: And Justin, the, um, one of the other key things is uh, participation rate. This is the number mm-hmm. of people that want to come back into the workforce. Do you think That's we've got a substantial, substantially different view to them on that? We actually haven't. We're, we're actually um, we are in um,
2: looking for the near term. We are a little bit uh, actually stronger than the RBA coming through participation. Um, but as we're moving through the end of next, by the end of next year, we're actually much on the same sort of level. So the true difference between the both of us is not so much around how much we think about participation. We are a little softer than the RBA because our numbers are a bit softer at the recovery side. But the real story is that the strength in jobs growth that, um, that we've already seen and the weakness the RBA is forecasting between now and the end of the year, they are forecasting that there's going to be minus, up, at least minus 300,000 between now and December. and That's a, that's a big job shedding.
0: That's good because it's always that participation rate is so hard to predict if the main reason yeah. why we're looking at differences around job growth uh, where economics is, uh, is a lot more reliable then that gives me a fair bit of comfort. So thank you a lot remember, Justin.
2: And just quickly on the participation bill, the reason it's getting complicated is that a lot of the job losses have been in the part-time and uh, casuals and, and female employment and those people come and go very quickly from the workforce, so that makes it really volatile. So we're in a, as, you, as we've been highlighting, a very extreme situation, and so um, it becomes harder to think about participation when you've got such strong movements going.
0: Thanks, Justin. Look, Andrew, um, October 6th, big date. What what sort of policy approach do you think the Treasurer will be taking?
3: Yes, yeah, sure, Bill. Hi. Um... So the budget provides an opportunity for the government of the day to update their economic forecasts. Um, of course, we had a update from the government back on July 23. On that occasion, the numbers only included forecasts for the current year, 2021, so they'll certainly need to extend them. Uh, we're looking into certainly an economic crisis, um, our first recession since the early 90s. Um, what we'll be forecasting is that the economy contracted very sharply and that will leave us with unemployment jumping to high levels and most likely staying at high levels for a number of years. So that sort of prospect is obviously unacceptable from a policy perspective and it demands a strong policy response. So what you need to do of course uh, when you've created a huge amount of excess capacity is to push the economy under a higher growth path and for it to be on that higher growth path for a number of years. Uh, So the government is aware of that. What we need to see is growth of a three handle three and a half to four four percent growth, which has been very elusive. Post the GFC, Uh, so they'll need to set out a plan to try and get us onto that higher growth path. Um, I guess there'd be three elements. One would just be dealing with the here and now, which is around income support, the welfare and income support. Uh, The second one would be around providing some boost to aggregate demand, be it through infrastructure and other sort of uh, measures. And I guess the third one would be around reform, which is obviously the much more difficult one, but one that could help to uh, push you onto a sustained higher growth path.
0: Okay, um, we've been talking about a budget deficit of around 230 billion for 2021. Mm. What's behind that? Is that what sort of stimulus do you think will be in the budget that could get you to that sort of a number?
3: Yeah, sure. So on July 23, when they updated their numbers, uh, they they were anticipating a deficit of 185 billion. Um, at the time, that included policy. Around 120 billion and around 70 billion in terms of um, impact from the economic downturn. Um, so since the July 23, of course, Melbourne went from a, to an escalated lockdown. Uh, they then increased or improved the eligibility criteria for some of their programs around uh, JobKeeper. Uh, that added another 16 billion, so that gets us already to 200. At the time, we thought that they would need to extend those programs, the seeker, from December uh, to June next year, and the JobKeeper uh, out to another quarter. That sort of adds another uh, up to $15 billion as I've mentioned there, in terms of the policy response, you certainly need to boost demand. So that could be infrastructure. Certainly we think we need to further support households, so bringing forward those income tax cuts. So already that sort of package there is another $30 billion. Uh, so that's getting us up to the 230 from already... A, the 200, and of course there's still the risks that um, maybe the forecasts around the impact of the economic downturn were were, uh, too timid given the sort of stress that we're seeing in the labour market. But I don't think we should be concerned, obviously, and I don't think you are, that uh, a $230 billion number, it's a very large number, what's important is to get the policy settings right to try and lift us onto that higher growth path.
0: And certainly what we've seen with regard to the um the CLF with the central bank now, uh, banks will be required to hold a lot more government bonds, so that'll certainly help. And as I've indicated, I believe that the RBA is very open to more QE. So you'll probably be able to sell it quite easily. Um, Elliot, you're, you've been um, tinkering with your global growth forecast this month. Tell me a bit about that.
4: Yeah, it's been a need to make a, a number of changes to our, our global growth views, both because of uh, data we've received, uh, looking at sort of the immediate um, near term, and then also thinking about uh, what we're sort of seeing from a more structural perspective, particularly around China, and looking to their, their growth outlook, not only for the rest of this year, but also in 2021. Uh, the net result for our, our global growth view is that we've added back about a half percentage point uh, to our 2020 uh, growth view, um, and about 08 to our 2021 view, so uh, as of September market outlook, we're now expecting a, a 3.8% contraction in 2020 globally, uh, to be followed by a 5.8% gain in 2021. Now, I mentioned earlier there that, that we've been sort of assessing uh, and changing the forecast based on not only immediate but also longer term. The main sort of uh, I guess change we made uh, in the the, the immediate uh, sense has been around the US. So. Uh, because of the high incidence of COVID-19, um, the uncertainties around policy, we had expected a, a, a probably flat or very small growth outcome uh, in, in Q3 following on from the 30 or so percent annualised decline they saw in Q2. Uh, but what we seen is as we've got the data to hand for the back end of Q2 and even some of the sort of immediate partial outcomes for Q3 is that there's actually been a lot more momentum uh, than we had anticipated there. And so we're now actually looking for about well, a little bit more than half the, the decline of Q2 to come back in Q3. Uh, that will be offset somewhat by a softer growth outcome in Q4 uh, and also softer outcomes next year. Um, but it's still sort of giving them a much sort of stronger starting point, I suppose, for this recovery. And is part of the reason why we've seen such an improvement in terms of the labor market to date. Um, if we look then to, to, to Europe, uh, we've also seen uh, good reason to mark up uh, the growth outcomes there, albeit probably only about half as, as much in terms of the in quantitative sense um, for, for the US. So Europe is definitely lagging the US in terms of the recovery. But there's actually probably a stronger foundation for for the growth view as we look towards the end of this year and next year, Uh, principally because their fiscal uh, situation has become a lot more robust. Uh, It feels as though all policymakers there are are sort of headed in the right direction. So the ECB has done a very good job of providing liquidity, and now you've seen all the, the fiscal authorities across the continent come together. Uh, with a plan uh, to then uh, look to try and stimulate investment and employment over a multi-year horizon, um, which will actually provide a, quite a degree of confidence uh, and therefore get consumers out there spending as well. Uh, and that's really helpful because they've actually done quite a lot of work to try and keep people employed um, or you know, pay them while they've been furloughed, which means that they've got a, a good sort of a, sort of conducive starting point for, for growth as we move through at the back end of this year and into next year. Uh, so whereas we we have only uh, Look to sort of yeah, modestly revise up our, our growth view for this year for for Europe. Uh, we've got a much stronger upward revision for next year, and that's a bigger part of that that 0.8 sort of upward revision for the global number for 2021. Uh, the big, I guess, story uh, for the global economy, however, is actually not in that North Atlantic region. Uh, it's in Asia, and, and it's very much focused on China. Um, so far, uh, we've seen China reverse the loss associated with COVID from Q1 immediately in Q2 and get themselves effectively square for the year by June. Um, the data we're seeing to hand as it roll through the last couple of months has really um, sort of cemented the view that they are in, you know, effectively have suppressed the virus and are moving from a kind of recovery phase to a pure growth phase. And they're doing this on, a, on multiple fronts. Uh, so they've got production back up and running, and that's given um, the, the investors across the economy, whether it be business, the local governments, then also in the residential space, uh, a very strong basis to go out and, and, and start that, that investment uh, sort of activity and build the pipeline. Uh, and credit has been made available to support that as well. And then in some more recent months, we've also seen uh, quite a significant improvement in terms of the, uh, the consumer future as well. With uh, although lagging the investment story, uh, quite a lot of momentum building in terms of retail spending, and we expect that will continue on. Um, Obviously, you can expect that uh, retail sales would would lag for a while because uh, it was shocked quite heavily in the lunar year period, and then it's had a bit of time as as households have looked to actually uh, sort of replenish their their income and their wealth. But now they're they're very well set up to sort of go out and spend. And there's an additional element here which is very favourable for China versus a number of countries around the world, which is that technically they generally are a service importer. So they go out and spend on holidays abroad, um, education abroad. That's not really possible at the moment because of the high incidence of COVID around the world, and so they're spending more money at home. We expect this to continue through this year and into next year and provide more more support for net exports and therefore GDP growth uh, overall. The final element I just wanted to highlight, um, which is you know, definitely part of, of of the sort of the China picture, China growth picture for next year, is that uh, they have a lot of export opportunity sort of around the region uh, that is immediately around them, uh, being Asia, uh, and you have to expect them that they will take advantage of that. So. Although we are hearing still some uncertainties around US-China trade relations uh, in the lead into November's election, uh, there is far more opportunity than there is threat on the export front uh, because of the growth we are seeing, uh, the recovery we're seeing in the rest of Asia and the sort of longer term sort of development pipeline that region has. And this will serve China uh, very well as they look to sort of improve the productivity and profitability of their, their industry base and also expand more into service exports as well. Uh, so just to give, I suppose, a perspective of the scale of the, the activities that are underway in China and the way in which they will lead growth globally, whereas at the end of next year we expect uh, the US uh, to have still about a 1% deficit from where it was at the end of uh, 2019 in terms of GDP, uh, not only will we see growth um, in net terms in, the, in China this year, about 2.5%, but then we will likely see another 10.5% gain next year. Uh, so, effectively, they're going to be in a situation where they haven't even got a deficiency versus their potential growth, let alone the actual level of growth. And that's going to put them in a very strong position uh, as this kind of global recovery uh, takes root and, and strengthens through 2021.
0: Well, thanks for that. That's uh, that's an encouraging story. Uh, look, um, finally, do you think there's a difference in the policy approach to the virus now? You know, we've. We've been revising up our growth forecasts, and yet it looks as if there's a big second wave of virus going through the world at the moment. Do you think policy has changed in terms of its attitude to the uh, to the virus? I think
4: policy, and also to an extent, sort of consumer and business behaviour, is changing. So, um, for the countries that still have a relatively high incidence of the virus. Uh, the U.S. and to a lesser extent in Europe, uh, you're seeing a lot more reluctance on the part of, of households and business to actually stay sort of closed. They're looking to try and, I guess, mitigate the risk still, but actually look to get activity back up and running and get back to a some degree of, of normalcy. Uh, and you, know, you see this in different ways, but you know, the, a lot of the sort of state and local governments in, in the U.S. have been uh, very quick uh, to actually try and. Uh, and pull back on, on restrictions and, and sort of get activity happening again uh, Europe which kind of got the virus down uh, the way of it are now starting to see a bit of a second wave their response has been much more to sort of say that we, we don't want to go back into lockdown so um, yeah they are probably it's fair to say they're still trying to you know minimize uh, the chance of contagion as a through social distancing but they're not looking to go into those kind of lockdown measures and that is definitely being a positive growth because you're not restricting kind of supply of activity on that front and you're also probably giving people more confidence but so the more that they go you know about their ordinary sort of uh daily life uh and are able to do so even though the virus is depressed then the more willing they will be to actually do
0: that uh and continue on and, and to sort of drive activity forward. Thanks a lot, Elliot. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, the growth outlook for Australia, the labour market outlook, some views on markets, some of our high-frequency data, outlook for the budget going forward, and of course, the global story. So we hope you all enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed the discussion, and every time I listen to those guys, I learn more. So I'm in a great position to get access to all of them all the time, but now you can get them every, every, every month. Uh, And, of course, you can also get it by reading our Market Outlook. So thanks very much. Stay safe and have a great day. Thank you.